0: Welcome to the Coffee WTF Business Podcast. If you are a coffee enthusiast with a keen interest in the art of running a successful coffee operation, you have come to the right place. Join us as we dive into the captivating world of coffee. From the mesmerizing process of roasting and sourcing the finest green coffee to the exhilarating adventure of opening and managing cafes. In this podcast, we not only bring you the experts of the coffee industries, but also explore the valuable insights of business moguls who ever achieve greatness across diverse industries. These business leaders will explore the perfect blend of business acumen and practices that power successful ventures. From the entrepreneurial insights to management strategies, join us as we serve up hard conversation with industry leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts all brewed to perfection for your business growth and success. Whether you are an inspiring coffee entrepreneur or a seasoned business professional looking to add a little caffeine to your knowledge, this show will be your weekly dose of inspiration. From brewing passion to cultivating excellence, each episode will serve up enriching conversations, sharing secrets and strategies for success. So grab your favorite coffee, Put on your thinking cap and get ready to learn with us as we blend the worlds of coffee and business into perfect harmony of flavor and success. Hi, I'm Ben Hornstein, host of the Coffee WTF podcast. And I just recently got back from Denver, Colorado, where I had an opportunity to sit down with Unravel Merchants CEO, Steve Holt. Steve and I have known each other for well over a dozen years. Steve was instrumental in helping me understand farming and green coffee when I started my first coffee roasting company, Eccentricity Coffee Company in Cleveland, Ohio, which I sold in 2019. And we've kept our relationship strong and moving forward and it's always a great opportunity to sit down with Steve because we definitely have long conversations on the phone or in person and it's always enlightening and very meaningful for me personally to connect with Steve. Steve started his foray in coffee at Novo Coffee Roasters in Denver Colorado and Novo Coffee is owned by the Brodsky family, and one of the sons, Joseph, left to start an operation in Ethiopia and then bought a farm in Panama called 90 Plus, and Steve was instrumental in helping market and put together that farm, and he is an equity owner in that farm. And from there, Steve then started Unravel Merchant, where he brings in green coffee from Ethiopia mainly, but now he's also importing coffee from El Salvador. I am really stoked and excited to announce that we have our first sponsor for the Coffee WTF podcast. It's a group of professionals in Cleveland, Ohio, and they're called Fractured Coffee, and you can reach them at fracturedcoffee.com. These guys decided to really push the envelope and take a big risk in that they only source very, very elusive, expensive coffee that is truly mind-blowing. So they agreed to roast coffee for our subscriptions on Patreon. And if you go to patreon.com forward slash coffee WTF and subscribe to our podcast You will receive every month 100 grams of this incredible coffee gems that they roast. And you can actually brew the coffee before you listen to our podcast. Every month you'll get a different coffee. And I'm really excited because I drink coffee with these guys all the time. And I have to tell you, their coffee is absolutely phenomenal. What our subscriptions do for our company is that they help pay for travel. And equipment we plan on going across the country talking to cafe owners talking to roasters coffee talking to importers as well as hopefully making some trips to origin talking to farmers and employees of the farm and this really goes a long way to helping pay some of those expenses I don't use any of that money personally that money goes into the podcast And any help would be really appreciated and it will go a long way to help educate people across the world about how coffee really works. So today is episode one, part one of my interview with Stephen Holt and episode two and three will follow in the next week and the following week after that. I hope you enjoy it please sit down have a really nice cup of coffee and if you don't have really nice coffee then go to fracturedcoffee.com or subscribe to our patreon account at patreon.com forward slash coffee wtf enjoy part one of my interview with steve holt all the best and be well well i'm really excited because today I'm sitting down with one of my good friends, Steve Holt, from Unraveled Merchants, and I haven't seen Steve in a couple of years. And Steve, welcome. It's really great to be in front of you. Yeah, this is
1: great. It's it's good to kind of um, reconnect with you. And uh, again, our conversations always are uh, pretty deep into coffee, but it's always more than that. We always talk about life and how each other's doing and I just love being like checked in with with good friends so it's it's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, and I think we'll take this as just sitting down and discussing life and business and whatever happens today. It was very interesting because you really helped my business explode in 2013 and 14 when you were associated with 90-plus coffee. And uh, I kind of surprised you today and brought you some coffee from 2017 that I just recently roasted. It was a Jose Alfredo type of processing. And we both drank it and were blown away by just how good it still
1: tasted. Yeah, you can't get any better than that. I I think the the time at 90-plus really transform the industry of what flavor potential could be and the ability to risk experimental fermentation to get, um, uh, new taste experiences. And there was really not another, you know, uh, better farm at that time, just that could do that. Cause we were just always curious about, uh, uh expanding what the, the status quo was of the specialty industry and, and being part of a a prestigious farm that is 90 plus and still is, has some of the best geisha in the world as that variety goes. But part of that is just the plant, but it really was just the team and the willingness to, to, to try new things, um, to, to separate ourselves out. So it was just really fun because I haven't had a 90 plus coffee and many years and for that to be so well preserved and to still have all that character of that processing method and just kind of made me reflect back on the people that were involved with that with uh jose and joseph and the whole farm team that were just um uh really the at that time just was every everyone's head was turned towards that and we're just having fun you know making coffee and i think that was super important and you just have to have the right environment and you have to have the great um, ability to have a sustainable operation in order to make these coffees happen. But it was pretty crazy to, to smell that and taste that. Um, no age on the coffee, just expressive and it reminded me a lot of, of being there and, and actually cupping through hundreds and hundreds of coffees and just being blown away constantly. Yeah, that that's interesting. I remember when I first tasted this
0: coffee About six months ago, I was just sitting by myself brewing a cup of this coffee and I sat down and thought, this is amazing because it was that farm and your team that really started the progression of where fermentation processing has evolved to today. And it was really cutting edge. And I remember one of the coffees, I maybe it's, I don't remember which lot, 2, 219 or whatever it was, sold for $2,300 a pound. And I remember people were absolutely stunned when somebody bought that auction coffee for that much money. But that's That was how progressive that processing was at the time. And now today, they've taken the backbones of what you created at 90 plus, and they're now doing co-fermentations. We're going to talk about some of these a little bit later, but it really, it smacked me in the face when I tasted Jose Alfredo. I had lot 237. I I think that actually was the lot that sold for that much money. I have a lot 219. I have his Peaberry coffee, and I was sitting there drinking it thinking my god this is this is where all these processes have evolved to and you guys were the grand fathers of that and I, I think that's incredibly amazing
1: yeah it was going into this I, re- I remember when we had uh, just secured the 90 plus estate in Volcan um, Panama it's uh, C- Cia de Pando is the specific area and the Hartman family uh, which they have a farm in, uh, Rio Serena, uh, not too far uh, from our farm in Panama, but they uh, were integral in getting us set up um, to to grow coffee, but also uh, allow us to kind of progress in what we wanted to do. And I think that <laughs> I remember the early stage with uh, Esmeralda Farm, where that's really where the geisha... You know, was established. They had this. Uh, I remember Joseph was at the first Best of Panama when this variety showed up on the table, and everyone was just like, "You're supposed to be super quiet," but people could not hold their silence. they were like, "What is this coffee?" and and that farm has really established what Geisha is. But I remember uh, talking with Joseph, and he was saying that it's like, "Yeah, I I went to the Petersons. They were the they're the owners of the farm and." We were, along with the Hartman family, we were just saying, hey, is there any way that we can have this processed natural? Because back then it was just, you don't do naturals. It's like, it's all wash. It's the classic. They were saying, you know, it's the classic profile of Panama. But all of our time in Ethiopia, because we were working there well before this was happening, um, we just loved natural processed coffee. So when they, they refused to process and we, we were just like we'll take all the risks we'll, we'll buy it no matter what just let us help let us participate and when we were essentially told us like no that's not possible that's when we just turned to like well let's just do it ourselves and that's where those early stages of acquiring that farm I mean it's a cattle farm uh, it was deforested it was just the soil was all smashed so we had to essentially be very patient reforest the entire uh, estate um, plant uh, local trees to provide more shakes that's where coffee thrives so we used like castor trees were fast rapid growing and then doing some long term trees and I remember standing over our first harvest because we did have some existing geisha there um, and then we were just planting like crazy at the nursery to try to, to you know really plant this entire estate you know at that time it was like 132 hectares and uh, but within that short amount of time I mean the, the several years to getting through that we had immediately started experimenting with with processing methods and I remember our, our first coffee that we exported was maybe a pallet's worth so maybe a thousand pounds and we had some buyers in Australia some buyers in the US and that's where it all just exploded and but now here we are doing what we do in Ethiopia which is natural and it was just expected to do that type of processing and we're bringing this to Panama and learning a lot from that because not every coffee turned out. But I would say for the most part, we had established a new trend of fermentation. And then that has obviously gone throughout the years and we started doing cold fermentation. We we were taking cherries and putting them in grain pro bags and bringing them down to one of our rivers to cool them down. I remember that coffee. That was the one that, um, you know, I think Chad Chad Wang from Taiwan, he, he took first in the brewer's cup with that type of processing and um joshikazu from japan he also used that process method and you also
0: had a you had a a warm fermentation also you had yeah i can't remember what was the name of that coffee well
1: there was we did um uh we built a solar kiln which is typically a structure to dry wood rapidly so when you Um, mill wood and then it it goes through a curing phase of of drying and so that was uh, we had designed something very similar to like what a wood kiln is except we adopted it to dry coffee so that was like sauna like dry sauna temperature drying and so both extremes going to like something that was cold something that was really hot um, letting that kind of rehydrate and then dehydrate I think it wasn't it Sylvia Sylvia and Lotus were the two right. profiles. Correct. Yeah. So those were great coffee. And those were just, you know, the names were really based on what we were tasting. And uh so I mean, obviously like small lots and, and we still love a super clean wash process. We were doing honey process as well, but there was a lot of uh resistance for that. And I, I had a backlash with yeah, the word. Yeah. I mean that they, they just we we were There were farmers that were calling us out because what happened is that on these other farms, they found out what we were doing and then they went and did it themselves, but they didn't do it right. They, their, their experiment because it's very humid there. There's a very specific way to dry it. And we lost coffee because we were trying things and that's part of the deal. You know, you gotta, you gotta fail to succeed. And that's where like these farms would come in and do an entire lot one way and lose it because it would just mold or it would just it would become rancid and then so we got blamed for that i'm like we never asked you to do that and if you were going to do it do it in small amounts like figure it out first once you kind of figure out that recipe then you can kind of expand and, and do that and to this day it's it's the largest geisha farm in the world we've we planted that entire state and expanded onto another farm which just kind of um uh, expanded the property line of that and next thing you know we're sitting on the world's largest geisha estate with all of these flavor profile wow and what happened is that people were coming to the farm these would be like baristas roasters buyers and they recognized what we were doing and then that quickly got into the comp- competition uh, era where I would say for four or five years we were in the top six of like brewers cups and barista competitions mostly in the brewers cup because there's so much clarity when you brew coffee and say what it tastes like uh, but we also had baristas competing but for the brewers cup that's where we where we shined i mean that was a limelight for us we we were having three of the six people competing were using our coffee wow. and we had like maybe four years in a row of first place for brewer's cup and that just kind of dominated and that re- it just proved what we were doing was exceptional and that people were trusting us to come in um, to the farm and provide kind of the next thing or it's just something that was, you know, really well complex that could be explained well, like in competition. But again, it's a big farm and we do have to sell volume. And so there's um, there were price points that were, you know, uh, accessible. But at that point, I mean, the price of Geisha was, was super high yeah I remember
0: wow, probably twenty fourteen ish. I was really got into roasting coffee because I wanted to do it for myself. I wasn't looking to start a business. I wanted to drink the best possible coffee, and so I started doing a search for expensive elusive coffee and 90 plus name came up <laughs> and i remember i called and
1: i believe i spoke to jay de rose is that correct yeah he was uh on the team for uh, a little while yeah and I think so, a connection with his maybe his father because his father was a dentist well so I am a
0: dentist however that was our connection when I told him I was a dentist he says oh my dad's a dentist and so I started asking about the coffees now the coffees I was buying at the time were from sweet Maria's I believe because you could buy small amounts of oh, coffee Tom Mons. And, yeah and I had a six pound Uh, San Franciscan roaster which was in my house believe it or not I vented it out of the side of the house my wife was very gracious and encouraged me to do that and so but I was buying these coffees for five dollars or so and they were okay and then when I talked to Jay and he told me he had coffees such as Lomi Tasha and Gin and um, in those ranges you were selling those for you know 12 13 14 dollars and I was like dang that's that's expensive you know all right so how much do I have to buy and you were selling them in I believe 15 kilo boxes which was around 33 pounds for me at the time that was a lot I was selling I was drinking mostly coffee for myself but my friends were starting to buy coffee from me and I said all right I'm gonna I'm gonna buy two boxes of coffee. You guys were nice enough to send me two boxes of coffee. I remember the first time I roasted that coffee, it was, the coffee was just pristine. There were no Quakers and Quakers are unripe cherries for those that don't know about that. And I tried this coffee and it was an epiphany. My life changed. And so I remember I called Jay back and said, what other coffees do you have? And it was towards the end of the growing season and you had odd numbers of boxes of different coffees ranging from, I don't know, 12 to to $100 a, a pound. I remember it was the Simona Buy's coffee from Ethiopia, which we should talk about at some point. And I remember I must have bought 30 boxes of these coffees. And for me, it was a real risk because I didn't want to be sitting on, you know, 90, 100 kilos of coffee without any way to get rid of them and then there was an article in men's journal and you were gracious enough to say that hey you could you could buy our coffee at eccentricity in cleveland ohio and i started getting orders online from all over the country i couldn't figure out what the heck was going on and so you know the first day there was five orders and for me that was exciting it's like wow five orders but what's happening and then it was seven the next day 10 the next day and then 20 and now i'm Roasting all night long trying to get rid of these coffees to not get rid of them to get them out. And I finally reached out to one of the people that ordered coffee for me and I said, how did you hear about me? And they said men's journal. So I immediately ran up to Barnes and Noble. I grabbed that magazine and I saw there was an article about Joseph, I think it was called Brodsky's Beans, or no, it, whatever, it's not important. And I read that article 12 times, and I couldn't, I didn't see any mention of me, and I handed it to Jennifer, my wife. She immediately saw this little box. It said, where to buy Brodsky's Beans. I guess that's why, uh, That that's exactly what it said. And I was listed first, and it was like, wow, that's incredible, and from there, We got a really great reputation because we were selling your coffee and uh, it really catapulted our business into what it became and I want to kind of backtrack a little bit and talk a little bit about what processing coffee actually means and how that works for people who enjoy drinking coffee but really aren't sure. What you mean by a natural or a wash coffee? and then there's new vernacular for the, all these different other processes. And also uh, so let's let's start there. Could you describe uh, to our listeners what what exactly does processing coffee
1: mean? and what do you mean by wash coffee versus natural coffee? Yeah, so process, I would say, um, it's such a vague term. and there's also like negative um connotations with that when you're we saying like you know stay away from processed foods and I'm like processing is is what the word actually means it goes through a series of steps uh, from one point to the other um, to eventually get to like a final product and uh, but as you know in every growing coffee growing country you know like coffees are um you know coffee is a shrub it we have uh, it, it produces flowers then cherries how and, long does that take to produce cherries? Um, it depends it depends on a lot of things like the variety of uh, the coffee. There's maturation rates that go from um, the the flowering season, which is I'd say fairly short. it's like wonderful smell too. It's just imagine a a garden of coffee shrubs with flowering. It's like it's a very distinct um, smell and flavor we used to dry.
0: Yeah, you were. You send me some of the geisha flower, just and I brewed that, and it was like, oh my gosh, that was really cool. Yeah. So I had the, I had the cascar, which is the the peeled cherry with mucilage on it. Yep. I had the flower and the coffee seeds from the same bush. So when my friends come over, I I take them through this process, like, wow, this is the flower on the bush, of the geisha tree earth bush and we drank that and it was like wow that's really interesting then we drank the cascara which is just absolutely delicious and then i gave him the coffee and what an experience i don't know many people that get to experience something like that so
1: yeah i would appreciate that you were able to do a lot of the byproducts, products i would say are, are just are, are really interesting I don't, i'm not sure if there's like a great market for uh coffee flower because it's it's very time consuming. You have to wait for that flower to be on its last thread before it drops to the ground and you have to have tiny hands to kind of go in. So we did some of that in Panama. Um being in Ethiopia when we published a book called uh, Coffee Story Ethiopia. Um we were way at way out in uh uh Kaffa, I believe and we were rummaging through the forest and we met this um teenager that was had like a basically a spear, but he had a, like a really nice dressed button-up shirt and then like cut off pants and no shoes. And it was just strange to encounter him running through the forest. And uh, But it was a good opportunity to interview and kind of tell his life story now it connects to coffee. But there was even another part that when they were bringing in coffee, uh, if they had enough, they were happy, they would be able to sell that to the local market and then they would, uh, whatever was left over, they would consume as far as like their coffee ritual in Ethiopia. But the seasons that they didn't have it, they had to sell all their cherry, they were short. They didn't have coffee to brew for their own family. So what they would do, they would actually take the leaves and dry them out. The coffee, was oh, interesting. Dry them in steep and steep them as tea because they were so connected to the ritual. And I don't know if you know about Ethiopian coffee ceremonies, but it's like three times a day. It's you know they ethiopia consumes 40 percent of the coffee that they produce so it's the highest you know consumption and relevance of what they have to export and a lot of the coffees that they do brew for themselves are like below grade meaning that they're just kind of what's left over so it was really interesting to see how they utilize the plant all right so i threw you totally off wow. yeah so let's go back to- but but so but part of that too is like the entire process of Of what you get from a harvest, Um, what we know as consumers is just the coffee. And so, uh, outside of all the byproducts, that cherry is, you can relate it to the wine industry. Uh, There's varieties in grapes. And when people make wine, they uh, really try to focus on that variety. There's the climate that it's brought into as well. And so, part of that, is the complexity of what you're tasting as a coffee has many factors from tawar to the humidity, the moisture, the soil type, um, everything that is required to grow that coffee. But once you pick that cherry, um, so it goes from like a green, uh, essentially a green cherry, unripe, um, to its maturation, which is just the time to pick the cherry. And there's some tools to like uh, uh, um, measuring its bricks. So the sugar um, content. There's a right time to pick that cherry, and then if you don't pick it, then it becomes overripe, um, and then that's where you kind of get into some issues. So if you pick it too early, it's it's just not mature enough, and it becomes, you know, just a, really something that's undesirable um, to roast and drink. So that just that looking for that ripe cherry, you pick it, and that's the time when you decide what to do with it. And so there's many methods. Like you would find in, again, like the wine industry, it's like they harvest their grapes. There's a very specific time to harvest that. And then they decide what they want to do with that. So for us, when we say like a wash process, uh, this goes through a process where that cherry is picked. It's brought to a, what we call a wet mill. Uh, It goes through a pulping phase. And so uh, cherries get loaded into a pulper um, that just kind of peels off that skin that uh, and a lot of that mucilage that's on there just like how does it do that um it just goes it's almost like uh um it's there's a lot of different machines but the basics of a, of a pulper is to take uh to feed cherry in between the these two uh rotating blocks that um it's enough room to to peel off the the skin and the mucilage. but what it does it spits out two seeds so each coffee cherry has two seeds that's almost like a half shell. Um, So as you look at coffee that's not ground, um, it's kind of got that, kind of looks like a ladybug, um, but bigger. And uh, so that's just the two halves together in in one cherry. So when that goes through a pulper, it just, it strips off that skin, that mucilage, which is kind of a sticky, gooey um, uh, sweetness that that you get that um, is part of that taste profile. But And then there's a layer of parchment that goes around it. So think of like a peanut shell. And uh, But then once that um, it goes through that process, it's gonna go into a tank of water, which we call a, a fermentation tank. And uh, it, it's a pretty complex, depending on what country that you're working in, there's a lot of different ways that people do this. But basically what you're trying to do is just strip off all that mucilage, get all that cherry um, off of that seed, and by putting it in water and agitating it it just it slowly kind of dissolves and gets it off and so once that goes through that full milling um, process it gets laid out to dry so if you're in ethiopia on raised beds because there's airflow underneath and on top and it's not on the ground okay so when people think of raised beds you're talking about wood slat tables that you spread the coffee out is that correct yeah just big tables and if you imagine just like an estate and um, you would see, like, just these really, really, really long tables that are um, um, kind of built with a local materials with, like, a, a screen that goes over it, so there's airflow. And these get put on a variance of, of depth of a pile, but just imagine just these huge rows that, that you can get people on both sides to kind of start working the coffee and picking out things that shouldn't be there, like defects or... Um, uh, the things that are just not what you want to be in your final product. Is that crust still on that coffee? Yeah, that's that. That's just The targel? Yeah, okay. And so what that does, uh, we keep that on when we do a wash process because that just helps protect the, uh, the actual seed in, inside. Um, it is part of that drying process to get it from the, the moisture content. So within that seed, there's a certain amount of moisture. And then what we're trying to do is get this into a manageable moisture level because there's water that is inside the seed that's trying to stabilize at that point um back in the day we were happy with a 12 percent moisture so there they have the we have these like moisture readers that would take coffee and um detect like how much water essentially is in that coffee you do want to have some in there you don't want it to be zero percent because roasting that is just uh, not even fun at that point, and you're just going to burn the hell out of it. But I think the, the the standard back then was like 12%. Now we're looking at like um, 9.5 to 10.5 is is kind of more of an acceptable range. It gets technical. There's like water activity as well. Um, I won't get into that because it's just, for me, It's we, we have measurements that we find of acceptable range. So this wash process, coffee going through this stage, we're just, there's all these... Steps of measure to get this to where we want. Once that coffee has established its natural moisture content, and that's just over days of drying on these beds, then they go to a warehouse to rest. All right. I have a real one, real quick question. So, what happens if it rains? Those get covered. I see. Yeah, there's tarps to cover that, um, and that does happen. Um, the uh, with both a natural and a wash. Um, wash is a, a very laborious part of coffee it's it's crazy how people value that because there's more labor hours going into a wash than as a natural No, oh, that's interesting because it's going through this whole process uh, and, and even just getting a a permit for a wet mill let's say in Ethiopia is challenging it's expensive um, you have to have all this equipment you have to have these big uh, wet tanks you got to get draw water uh, from a local source and so Uh, And people are like, well, why would you do a wash? So, well, the wash is like, it creates a taste profile. So much like you would see like a white wine, you know, you're going to get something that's floral, crisp, vibrant. Um, A lot of the the notes that, you know, we can go over per profile. Um, And the reason why people do that is because it's, you get really good consistency with the wash. You can kind of figure out which seeds actually had the right amount of maturation uh the ones that don't have a lot of nutrients float to the top and those get skimmed off um so for people who are farmers who are trying to uh, you know producers and exporters are trying to sell coffee you know they're pr- they're producing a very consistent coffee so when roasters get it they're like yeah no worries it's just like the coffee is very consistent it's all roasting the same we don't have these you know uh coffees that are like um malnourished and the ones that are like overripe or underripe so you're just you're just kind of refining that to get to like consistent clean product um that's what the majority of people do washed. yeah I, I found it a well, know yeah well it's easier to roast to that too now getting um through the milling cycle you know it goes to uh it rests for x amount of months because uh a lot of those the water activity needs to stabilize moisture just needs to kind of really kind of refine itself down to that ideal percentage that you want to get to and then um but before it's exported you have to kind of rip off that um that parchment and so that goes through like more of a warehouse it would be like in a city some people do it on the farm but typically if your farm is far away from your main warehouse you have to truck that in these bags over to your main milling cycle and that's where it goes through a lot of different pieces of equipment through um it goes through another like uh To where you're uh, deparching the coffee, so you're just you're stripping off that that little skin. It's like it's pretty silver skin. Is that what they call that? Well, silver skin is essentially the the outer layer of the seed. Okay, parchment's a little bit. It's got and that's like a a shell. It's almost like a peanut shell. So that's easier to kind of strip off. But that's when you start seeing the actual seed that you're getting ready to to ship to roasters. Um, It goes through uh, uh, some warehouses have a color sorter and so like there's different color hues to each seed and so if you want to separate those out the ones that are lighter can get discarded the ones that are too dark if there's any that are like infected by like a like a bug bite or defects there's a whole like series of defects which uh, very important but probably not as exciting to consumers but i guess the point is that the labor that goes into producing coffee is Pretty insane, especially when everything is handpicked, like you would see in Ethiopia, uh, Brazil. They do have machines that do this, um, but I think part of that is really the importance of all the work that gets put into this to create a taste. So, if you're on a wine, if you're on a, a wine estate, you know, a vineyard, then they're getting these varieties that come in. They're fermenting. They're making their wine and then you have a classification of a wine. So if it's like a, a Sauvignon Blanc or it's a Chardonnay, they all have just different characteristics and it's the same thing with coffee. So like I always related the, the washed coffees to like a, um, like, like a white wine um, or a rosé or something like that. That's like floral and citric and re- like, uh, depending on the variety, depending on the country where you're growing it, that's like we have great options of coffee. Um, the complexity of coffee is is insane too compared to wine. But um, so the wash process, one thing you just you're going to get something to me that's like um, really clean um, and has certain taste characteristics. With that, now flipping to natural, um, much easier because all you're doing is harvesting the cherry. You bring it in uh, to the same beds the style of beds, let's say, let's just use Ethiopia as an example, those cherries just get laid out on the beds. And so it's kind of like taking grapes and making them into raisins. It's, it's that um, process where cherries hit the bed, uh, they get manicured. So a lot of farmers will, as those are drying through the drying phase, um, that mucilage inside of the cherry is being absorbed into past the parchment into the seed. And what you're, the main difference of that is that you're getting really fruity characteristics of coffee. And so for me, that's a totally different style. That's like a Cabernet. That's a Syrah. That's like a, you know, just a, something that's like more on the red and purple fruits. And um, so you're not having to use water. So the labor goes like way down. The thing with that, though, is that you have to be really particular about the cherries that hit those beds. Because it's hard to tell when you're just taking a cherry and putting on a bed. You're not floating them. You don't get that opportunity to kind of start getting these coffees to, to be as consistent. There's a way to do that. And that kind of comes down to like the obviously knowing when to pick the cherry and, and um, making sure that, that those beds are rotated. So a lot of this is hand mixing every day and kind of sorting out visually what these uh, workers do on the farm. They'll they know which ones to kind of take out ahead of time goes through the kind of same process, it'll it'll go in bags, it will rest, it'll go to the main warehouse, it goes through like the um, uh, same type of um, milling cycle, except now it's peeling off that dry cherry and the parchment at the same time. And then it goes through like uh, a pneumatic um, sorter, it goes through screen size, you know, each size of the seed is different, and so we're trying to narrow that down into the sizes that we know work really well, you don't want them too small, too big and um so it's it's always a process but as far as the the cost to make naturals is far less but again if you just look at the overall project you know we're getting into two main categories of coffee that most people are probably consuming and that is a wash process so think about white wine and a natural process think about red wines that's the easiest way i can explain it but obviously there's so much nuance in that. but yeah, um, just a couple of follow-up questions with
0: that. How does the sun affect both wash and natural coffees or are they in the sh-
1: are they in a shaded area? Well, we do uh, different things um, if we want a different result. So part of the so the farm that I spent most of my time on in Chantagoba in uh, Sidama, Ethiopia, with uh, my uh, producer partner, Ashinafi, um, Arga. And he was part of 90-plus as well, but he's, he's doing his own thing in Ethiopia uh, with ardent coffee production and exports. And um, so, but spending time there, I just, I, there's areas where we'll have the beds raised and then there will be like semi-shade. So we'll actually build these posts up and put these kind of semi-transparent uh, black tarps that go across the bed. And what that does is that it slows down the drying process. So some of the cherries will hit full sun, and depends on the day so every day can create variability in your coffee Um, that does happen over time i mean once cherries come in they're filled with moisture they're breaking down they're fermenting and then they get to this kind of lighter kind of uh dark purple um uh dry kind of uh feeling but it's like the smell of it's like really distinct to you but um but we'll just kind of control the rate of drying to that and the same thing with with Uh, wash coffees typically we go full sun on those but if there's cloud coverage for the day that changes each day Um, some do go into shade at that final stage just if we want to slow down the drying process If it say you get you know five to six days of like really really hot um, weather really intense sun those can maybe dry too fast and uh and that there's a just a a a certain amount of time that you want to kind of dry coffee. You don't want to go too fast. You don't want to go too long. But what we've also found out is that you can slow down that that fermentation process by providing shade. And we get really incredible results from that too. So there's it just kind of depends on in our what an sounds like. It is. And you have to know imagine this, I mean you're let's, let's we'll go back to Shantagulba. There's seven hundred and fifty to a thousand workers on that farm, there's there's farmers which are doing the harvesting and there's workers that are doing the, the work on the, at the wet and dry mill. And uh, so to coordinate that, to train everybody to be essentially doing the same thing, knowing what to look for, um, it is a very intense labor process. So then I'm going to take
0: us off course and bring us back. You know, one of the things that I always hear from people, uh, whether they're my friends and or end users who are buying coffee from me, is why is coffee so expensive? And my mind just goes to really dark places when people say stuff like that. People don't realize how laborious it is to get that coffee into your cup. And you know, I have friends who will buy hundred-dollar bottles of wine and or hundred-dollar bottles of bourbon or whiskey, and they don't bat an eye. But if you know they're faced with buying a forty to eighty-dollar bag of coffee, which will yield thirty cups, which really ends up being two dollars a cup, you go to the boxes see, for four fifty. You get this consistently dark roasted awful coffee in my opinion and they don't bat an eye spending that and they have to put milk and cream and taste just to doctor up the coffee just so they could drink it when in fact we're talking about specialty coffee which i believe makes up about five percent of all coffee production well why how how as coffee professionals how do we get the message out that coffee is really not that
1: expensive. Well, the problem, is if you look at the history of coffee, um, we did this to ourselves. I mean, we trained people that coffee is a commodity and the race to the bottom never wins. So, but at that time, let's say like, uh, it's weird because like the very first coffee that was consumed was really expensive because you couldn't even get it, and that's the I believe some of the first cafes were in Yemen. Yes, it was
0: seven in seventeen, approximately seventeen seventy. Mm-hmm. It cost seventeen dollars in money back in the seventeen seventies to get one pound of coffee. Right, and you know I don't know what that is in today's
1: dollars, but it certainly is going to be in the hundreds of dollars. So yeah, we went like to to where it was scarce and precious. And it was essentially available to the the wealthy um, because it wasn't that much around until this like became a, you know, a, it's a very dark history. I mean, uh, slavery being mm-hmm. the bigger point of it, uh, it goes super dark. And it, as far as just what we did in order to create this product for consumption and then getting into like, you know the uh, 20s through let's say like the 60s and and 70s just being this mass commodity product that would just be like you know imported in you know container loads container loads roasted on these massive roasters trying to figure out how it would make it super easy to consume this and then so the bigger part of this was just the price i mean the price in coffees in you know brazil which is the largest producing country you know going from you know brazil and colombia and then surprising enough vietnam being up there too with a different type of coffee uh called uh robusta lower elevation coffees but it was just that race to the bottom to get something cheap that would make it very easy for people to consume and so if you think about our parents you know them growing up in that that time where there's like instant coffee and if you, it's if you just google like um, it's kind of funny if, if you're just doing like 50s and 60s coffee commercials oh yeah does do that and have fun because yeah. it's like it's not only is it like sexist but it's like <laughs> it's uh it's just you see that it's all about, um, you, you know, just taking a product that's shit to begin with and and trying to make it easy to consume and, you know, uh, husbands would blame their housewives for, like, making really bad coffee and, until they got instant coffee and, and all these these things. And even before that, like, uh, it was like, you had to roast your own coffee. Um, I forgot the, the time period of that, but that's when you'd get these bigger companies that would roast it and then bring it to the grocery store. And then all you have to do is brew it like with like fresh perk or, or whatever um, back then. And then, um, you know, just some of the commercials saying it's mountain grown. It's like, well, no shit. It's a, you know, that's where coffee grows. But it was selling this to the consumer in that industrial age, that consumer age. It was just really the goal was to like, not think about it and just make it easy so you would feel great when you consume the coffee it gets you on your day and that kind of thing flavor wasn't even really a thing because you know it's all relevant to the area that you were in and uh, it'd be amazing to taste coffee that might have been like preserved back then to to roast it and um, taste it but there's a there's a great podcast uh, from Filter Stories that um, James Harper that's like uh, love listening to him, but he goes through the entire history of coffee. So a lot of what I'm talking about is some just kind of highlighting some of the things that that mm-hmm. I've learned through that. But, but I grew up, my first experience with coffee was Pete's Coffee. And the reason why I liked it, because I was, you know, back in the late 90s, I was early in, you know, doing web development and learning about e-commerce even back then you know, when, when purchasing products on the internet was just like very foreign and new. But one of my friends told me about Pete's Coffee because they went out there and, uh, you know, just on on the West Coast and um, and then I was able to buy it online. I was like, of course I'm gonna do that because I, I just wanted to have a good story to tell. You know, and drinking their coffee, it's like they're just known to, to Really develop their coffee with very dark roasts, but I was doing a French press, and I thought I knew what I was, what I liked. But I was there doing cream and sugar, but it was just cool that I got to like I had a blade grinder, and you know I thought I was like a coffee pro, yeah. and uh, but then until I tasted coffee from Ethiopia when when I first met Joseph with Novo Coffee, and they're a specialty roaster in Denver back in the early two thousands, uh, really like on the edge, innovative, and I, didn't, I had no idea even how it was roasted. And so my first tasting of Ethiopian coffee was some of the best coffee in the world. And that's when I learned that like, oh, there's something different. Like you would find in any industry, there's like mass commodity stuff, and then there's specialty stuff. And you kind of want to be in that, in crowd. You want to be the first to tell somebody about something new. And, and then, but what I've learned is that it's not just about fulfilling yourself with that type of pleasure it's about understanding the fundamentals of what's trying to be done and so for me that was that point I was like there's something better there's a better way to do this there's a better way to take care of the work that's being done on the farm to reward them for the work that they do and then the end result is that we're able to provide something for consumers that just don't want to go with like the standard commodity stuff that you'd find at Costco that's pre-ground and tastes like shit it's like what you're putting in your body is important. Mm -hmm. And so, when you go back to that point of the cost, why is it so expensive? Part of it is when we're talking about the processing and the different types of uh, process methods and the labor that goes into that, it's incredibly complex and laborious. And to, to, to make sure that you're taking care of everybody in the value chain is super important so because we want this to continue we don't want this coffee to go away and that's what that's what commodity is threatening we're being a very small percentage of the industry is great i wouldn't want to be in any other place doing volume commodity coffee is just uh, really no interest of mine because i know what it does you just that's that's fulfilling people's laziness to, to to seriously consider what they're putting in their body and so and we've seen that through the industry we've seen people. Um, the advancement of knowledge of food and products and just refusing to participate in this global uh, mass consumer, you know, consumption, you know, with preservatives and processed foods and all that stuff is just like, uh, it's, it's horrible for your body, you know, start taking care of yourself, start taking, take the extra time to purchase something that you know is, is doing something better. Um, because we we don't want this to go away ever you know and it with the effects of climate change and just how it's the farms are adapting it's very important for us to back these projects and so um, and then there's the other side of like there's coffees that are just really expensive but it's only because of a scarcity thing it's like if same thing in a wine store you're going to go get a limited batch of these wines is it is it affordable for you to go buy a hundred bottle of you know a hundred dollar bottle of wine. You're gonna get four glasses out of it, twenty-five dollars for some of the best wine. You go to a restaurant and you're gonna spend sixteen to twenty bucks on a bottle of wine that's probably average and and probably not even processed well. You know, so getting into more like biodynamic wines, getting into natural wines, um having all these like additives into wine the majority of the wine that we're drinking is just like there's really bad stuff in it and so for me that's kind of where specialty coffee comes in it's like it's worth us to handpick every cherry to go through this process to make sure that it's actually um sustainable and not only sustainable but um there's reinvestment back into that for growth and to making sure that everyone's being taken care of getting it in the hands of roasters making sure people are roasting coffee uh, Properly, there's education on how to brew coffee at home. But go buy a hundred dollar bag of coffee. That's you know, uh, two hundred fifty grams, or you know, just like a, a ten to twelve ounce bag of coffee. Do the math. You get one of the best coffees in the world, and you're still only spending a couple dollars a cup. Hey, I'm I'm like right camp absolutely,
0: but I we're think not. Coffee should be. We should be charging way more. For the coffee, especially for those hands that touch the coffee down the line, those people need to be paid fairly. And, you know, when you're buying commodity coffee for $2.50 a pound, those those farmers are making diddly squat. You know, a Nicaraguan right. farmer with a couple of hectares of, of land, which is not that much, is producing 1,000 or 2,000 pounds of cherries, They're they're, they're getting paid... $4,000 for a whole year's worth of 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 work, and their kids aren't going to go into a business like that. They're going to want to leave and go into the city and get a, a, a better job. I think we, in specialty coffee, we've definitely done a better job of making sure that the farmers are being paid so that the kids on those farms want to carry the legacy forward. And mm-hmm. You know, you you hear stories about people that you've never heard before winning these Cup of Excellence uh, uh, tournaments, if you will, and it's nothing more than submitting your coffee and having it graded and scored. And if if you do well, you become known, and you're set. So I'm I'm definitely definitely right in line with with what your your
1: talking about and i I appreciate your perspective part of that too just to add on to that uh, like a what's kind of being done about this like it's like that's great you can produce great coffee you can bring it in you can do that but there is more work that i want to let people know about and that does come down to one project that i'm currently involved in with uh one of my uh roaster clients that i'm uh we're producing and selling coffee to in ethiopia they're called bellwether and uh Gotten to know them uh, quite well. They actually build these um, very sustainable electric zero emission roasting machines to allow cafes to be involved in green coffee purchasing, to where they don't have to, you know, buy coffee from another roaster. And these these you could be this plug and play type of roaster in a cafe that they kind of do all the work, and all you got to do is just select the profile you want, and you push a button, you walk away. It's like a brilliant concept. But part of their business is they're also trying to be make a difference in how they're sourcing their green coffee and so the program that we're involved with bell right now so right now they're working with us at our Shantagulba site in sidama and besides just like sourcing coffee like every you know importer does um, they wanted to make sure that the people on the farm were being paid what they deserved. And so they uh, developed this program called Living Income Price. It used to be called uh, Verified Living Income, and they've changed a couple of things. But their first case study, I believe it was in Columbia, so the uh, lady named Grayson, that's um, their head of sustainability, um, started talking to all the workers and the farmers about what's the cost of living? What does it cost you to have your job here?
0: I hope you enjoyed part one of my interview with Steve Holt. Episode two will continue with the living income price model in Ethiopia and a lot more. So have a great week and all the best.